I hope that those of you who've been here for the day have uh, found it uh, an agreeable and um, fitting way to mark the occasion of Vaisakha Puja and have found some nourishment and increased strength and commitment to cultivate these teachings that we've received uh, from from the Buddha, from the great teachers, from the tradition. Of course, there's many different ways of talking about these teachings and sometimes it comes down to what the tradition has emphasized, sometimes it's temperament, character, culture. There's one particular aspect of the teachings which I personally uh, enjoy regularly contemplating and, and find pertinent and often beneficial to talk about, and that's this aspect of agility, agility of attention, and that it's something that we can and would be uh, wise to cultivate, to develop. And that's quite easy to fixate and for our attention to become contracted and rigid. and But as also, those of us who have been practicing for a while and hopefully come to recognize it's, it's also perfectly possible to exercise the kind of effort whereby attention softens and broadens and becomes more malleable, if that's the right word. In other words, there's something we can do about the quality of attention that we exercise. And and if we have agility of attention, well, it gives us increased ability to accommodate what might otherwise be seen as quite frustrating circumstances, apparently conflicting conditions. Paradoxes, dilemmas, uncertainty, and, and there's no shortage of perception of uncertainty. And so, using these teachings that we've received to equip ourselves with the skill to be able to receive uncertainty when that's what's happening uncertainty externally and also internally. And, Sometimes there are aspects of the the teachings and experiences that we have in practice that oblige us to acknowledge this is uncertain. How do we accommodate that? Can we accommodate that? Or are we so fixated on being certain, the good feelings that come in association with feeling sure? Certainly feeling sure is nice. Feeling certain, feeling confident, agreeable. 
perception and pleasant feelings eh, come with feeling clear and confident. But sometimes we just can't be clear and confident. We feel unsure and uncertain. So flexibility of attention can be very beneficial. And Two weeks ago, I finished a talk that I was giving on the topic of how to make a difference with a sentence that said something like, we would do well to reflect on how this path of practice, this training that we're involved with, aims at equipping us with the ability to accurately meet ourselves, truly receive ourselves, fully let go of ourselves, and if all goes well, thoroughly forget about ourselves. And I thought that was worth saying and accorded with the teachings accurately and worth raising up. And then somebody afterwards mentioned to me that they really didn't think that most people related to this path of practice in this way, that the idea of thoroughly forgetting about ourselves, not to mention completely letting go of ourselves. And, And so possibly that was partly why I said it, that I wanted to raise up this the juxtaposition of these two aspects of the Buddha's teachings. So the Buddha did talk about self, looking after ourselves, taking care of ourselves, self-kindness. It's a whole section in the Dhammapada, I think, section, section 12, is it? And about the self and all sorts of stanzas there about taking care of the self. But the Buddha also talked about not-self, anatta. So how do these two go together? Well, often people get confused about this and if their minds if their attention is tethered and fixated then they'll just default for one or the other and focus on developing this point or developing that point whereas if we have agility of attention we can accommodate both even if we don't understand both we can accommodate these two perspectives these two aspects of the teachings and it doesn't have to be a conflict in that section on the Dhammapada where there's a saying that the whole portion of the Dhammapada talks about self, there's a verse there, I think it's verse 157, which says that if we hold ourselves dear, then we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. If we hold ourselves dear, if we hold ourselves dear, we maintain careful self-regard both day and night looking after ourselves. And on many occasions the Buddha pointed out how you know, by maintaining a good level of integrity, self-confidence emerges from that. Self-trust becomes self-reliant. There's another Dhamma part of verse 380, which is atahi atanonato koinato parosiya. We are indeed our own secure abiding. How could it be otherwise? Or oneself is one's own refuge. That's literally what it says. Atahi atanonato atta. That's not the same as anatta. Atta means self. Anatta means not self. And the Buddha used both these expressions. And so rather than getting confused or just saying, oh, I don't know what this means, 
if we cultivate the agility of attention, we can open up and receive both, both perspectives. Even, as I said, even if we don't understand. And often we don't understand aspects of the teachings, conundrums that we get confronted with in life. How am I ever going to extricate myself from this tangle, from this mess? If we have agility of attention, we don't have to fixate on a solution. In the external world, in the period when we were developing this monastery and we were confronted with a really tricky issue of how to deal with wastewater situation and nobody could seem to come up with the answers. We thought we'd come up with an answer but then the neighbours didn't seem to want to cooperate with our preferences and we were back to beginning again. And But instead of defaulting to, oh, there's no way out of this and feeling defeated by this apparent conundrum, this sufficient openness and of attitude, interest in the possibility of discovering a solution, that a solution emerged and a perfectly functional one. We're very grateful for the result. So in the external world and the internal world, developing an attitude of agility is really skillful and and one of the ways of developing it is just to contemplate, to register how beneficial it is. Whether we're looking at what the Buddha said about developing and protecting a sense of self. and It's true a lot of people get into meditation because they're trying to get themselves together. They're trying to sort themselves out. And that's true. There's no conflict between that and the Buddha's teachings. Unless we ignore the other aspect which is, I think, verse 279, it says, Sabe dhamma anatha ti yadha panyaya pasadi atani bindati dukhe e samago visudhiya. Sabe dhamma anatha ti. All realities are devoid of self-essence. That's literally what it says. Sabe dhamma, all realities, as conditioned and unconditioned realities, and not just the conditioned stuff, not just all the things, but also what the Buddha referred to as the unborn, undying, uncreated, unmade reality, asankata dhamma, amata dhamma, uh, uh, abiding that awakened beings uh, are familiar with. Uh, so the conditioned and unconditioned realities, all realities, are devoid of abiding self-essence. So we don't have to tie ourselves up entangles over the apparent conflict of these two aspects of the teachings. Agility of attention means that we can open up and receive. And in this case, or many situations, they say, well, actually, I don't know. And there's nothing wrong with not knowing. And what could there be wrong with not knowing? Of course we don't know. There's so much of reality, so much of life. We don't know. We don't know when we're going to die, and that's quite a big deal. Death is... <laughs> In terms of human events, that's, a, that's, a, that's right up there with the most significant things that ha- could happen. And we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know if we're going to get sick. We don't know the future. There's so much we don't know. And so if we have agility of attention, then we don't have to cling or fall prey to our attention becoming fixated. Idealism is a form of fixation because 
we find the limited ability to accommodate contradiction or paradox or dilemma or uncertainty, we default to just clinging to a particular view. You can get a lot of energy from that. When attention contracts, you can get very energized, but it can be a very rigid form of energy. You may feel very sure about the thing, the view, the opinion that you're fixated on or you're clinging to, feel very energized, a strong sense of me and my view, my opinion, and wanting to convert other people, possibly, to your opinion or view. But, but there's so much that's excluded from that default position. And when awareness is not really developed, then it tends to go in that way. It's either this way or that way. You can't accommodate both. Well, with the agility of attention, with well-developed awareness, maybe we'll discover that it is possible or it begins to become possible. Or will you catch a hint of how it could be possible? And that provides us with a, a very creative possibility for dealing with life's dilemmas. We don't have to always feel sure about stuff. Last night, after chanting the Tamachaka Sutta, we contemplated how wisdom and compassion, expressions of purified awareness, a heart that has been set free, expresses itself in this way, and, and unshakable wisdom and boundless compassion, that's the expression of the heart of the Buddha and the awakened beings. And they're very different. And we don't have to wait until we have the good fortune to open up to limitless com compassion and unshakable wisdom before we can have a, a strong conviction of the, the place of these aspects of consciousness. We don't have to wait until we've finished our work. And there's, well, on the way, along the way, we can open up to approximations. We can even imitate compassion. Mm -hmm. I was talking last night about a meditation on compassion and how we can generate feelings of uh, compassion. They may not be selfless, boundless compassion, but they can approximate compassion and we can build on that, we can develop that. But if we don't have agility of attention... In the example of wisdom and compassion, it's quite possible, and maybe even quite likely, that we'll just end up clinging to one or the other. And you do find this in the spiritual journey. There are some people who are overly emphasizing compassion to the point where maybe they end up with burnout, with compassion fatigue, because they encountered compassion is so inspiring, uplifting, and encouraging, and, and beautiful in so many ways. The, the pleasure and joy that comes in association with compassion becomes intoxicating. And if attention is not agile and awareness is not sufficiently well developed, then this clinging takes place. Clinging to this limited form of compassion. It may feel better than a miserable state of selfishness, and I'm sure it does, but when we cling to it, we can 
lose perspective. For instance, lose perspective on the place of wisdom. The cultivation of wisdom is often really hard work. Asking really difficult questions about the real cause of suffering. We tend to easily and readily assume that the cause for suffering is outside ourselves, whereas if we get interested in the actuality, not just the apparent reality, but the actuality of suffering, and get a little quiet, a little discipline in our attention, gently ask the questions of ourselves, what are the real sources of suffering, maybe we'll come around to recognising ourselves that it's something we're doing, it's something we're adding to the experience. Like, you know, compassion, as I said, can be on one level very beautiful, but if there's a big, rigid me identified with feeling compassion, I am compassionate, my compassion, that I'm spreading all around the world, and but the people who we're feeling compassionate for tell us to get lost or don't respond and instead of giving up drugs and crime and whatever other causes for confusion that they might be caught up in, they just go back to generating more causes for more suffering for themselves. And what happens then? We fall into disappointment. Or maybe we get angry. How dare they not accept my compassion and kindness? And your compassion, and that's not wise. You may think it's expressing compassion and generosity when in fact it's undermining people's opportunity to take responsibility for their lives. And so fixating on compassion uh, through clinging to the pleasant feelings associated with it spoils compassion. Clinging to initial limited stages of development of insight or the wisdom aspect of the region can likewise. You can become a very cold-hearted, miserable, idealistic, Theravadan Buddhist if you cling to the Buddha's teachings. And I've, I've seen this the people you know, referencing the law of karma when you see somebody suffering, you say, well, it's their karma, what else do you expect? Say, well, that's not very considerate, it's not very kind. And you say, well, it's the Dhamma. <laughs> well, it depends on how you approach the Dhamma. If you cling to a position on the theory of Dhamma, then maybe you can justify such a perspective. But we would be wiser to appreciate the place of agility of attention and learn how to according to time and place work on both aspects wisdom and compassion not just getting fixated on the wisdom teachings not just overemphasizing compassion Probably most of you are also familiar with the Buddha's teachings on the eight worldly dhammas or the eight worldly winds that we get blown around by whoever we are in life. Uh, Whatever stage of life we're at, whatever stage of wisdom or understanding or realisation or lack of realisation, all beings get blown around by the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and 
pain, honor and insignificance. The Buddha got blown around by these things. The Buddha was sometimes praised and sometimes blamed. And sometimes you feel you're gaining, sometimes you feel you're losing success and failure, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. Everybody experiences pleasure and pain. Those descriptions and the, the teachings of the Buddha in his old age, with a headache and sore back and and pain is just what comes with the body. Pleasure also. Yeah, it's normal. And honour and insignificance. In some situations we're honoured and held up and respected. And other situations we're dismissed. You know. In the monastery here I'm, I'm the abbot. I sit on the high seat and I get... Somebody brings my breakfast tray to me and people call me Lumpur, and which is a very nice expression and say generally most of the time say nice things to me and I feel appreciated and respected and then the other day I was in Kingston Park and went with one of the supporters of the monastery went to Tesco's and this fellow comes up to me and looks up and says oh I I like your outfit it's a kind of different experience and sometimes you're somebody and sometimes you're nobody this is life and But in coming to terms with our relationship with the eight worldly wounds, how do we deal with praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, honour and its significance? Are we just going to hope that we're going to get all the good bits and avoid the bad bits? Well, that's not very wise. With agility of attention, we can look at both. Sometimes there's a case where maybe you find that you're always afraid of criticism you catch this glimpse of yourself you know, contracted state and somebody in authority or senior to you looks at you and you think oh I'm going to get into trouble or quite possible all the things that can happen to us early stages of life getting dragged in front of the headmaster and getting told off or slightly insensitive parents you can develop an excessive sensitivity to criticism and and blame and and so you're busy looking at this, you're busy looking at this fear of criticism, why am I always afraid of criticism, why am I always afraid of being told off and you're looking at but maybe we don't realise what we need to be looking at is that unconsciously we have this other thing going on, not just fear of criticism, we have this desire for praise, for approval with agility of attention, we're able to flip to the other side and look at that. That's really helpful. Often it's the thing we're not looking at that has the solution that's going to trigger letting go. Gain and loss. You know, always trying to be a winner. Always having to be number one in an argument, in a conversation, in a, in a group project. Always being the one taking initiative. Always trying to be the first and the best and the mostest and then trying to gain be seen to be winning and you're looking at that you catch that in yourself and say well that's not very nice that's not very impressive but you're so caught up in it it's compulsive always trying to be number one always trying to please people all the time with agility of attention you can perhaps shift to looking at the other side 
and look at the fear of loss. And that's very different. Wanting to be number one, always wanting to win, wanting to be the hero, maybe that fits with some story that we were told at some stage of life. But the trigger, the trick, the lever that's going to help unhook us from this false identity is our fear of losing. Now, without agility of attention, maybe we're not going to see that. We can think we're doing the right thing, looking at our desire for praise, desire for winning, when really what we need to do is look at the other side. Pleasure and pain, honour and insignificance are the same. When there's agility of attention, we don't run such a risk of falling into a fixated perspective. And quite the opposite, we have the uh, possibility that we'll be able to scan, look around, look at different perspectives and come up with creative, unimagined solutions. And a similar theme recently I've spoken a number of times about the subtlety of attention that uh, is needed really to be able to discern the difference between a natural understandable sense of aversion for something that's repulsive Mm. and hatred or rage. They are related. Hatred, rage and aversion are related. But they're distinctly different. It's quite possible for the body to have a reaction of aversion, something rotten, something, a really foul smell, like the smell of a rotting body. I'm sure medical folk would be able to explain why our body reacts with the experience of aversion for rotting human flesh. It's, It's biological. But that doesn't mean to say we have to hate the smell. Or you see somebody acting in an abusive way of perfectly natural for there to be aversion, dislike to arise. But that doesn't mean to say we have to hate the person. Sometimes Buddhist scholars present the teachings whereby we get the impression that we've got to get rid of all aversion or we've got to get rid of all desire. How could you possibly live without desire? Desire is a perfectly natural impulse for human beings wanting to eat and wanting to sleep, wanting to be helpful, wanting to avoid causing suffering to other beings. Perfectly natural or can be perfectly natural, wholesome impulses. But what's the difference between that and craving or greed? Well, the difference takes takes a subtlety. It takes a subtlety of attention, an agility of attention, to be able to see the difference, to be able to see that clinging is the thing. Clinging is what's causing the difficulty. If we're trying to get rid of all desires, or we're trying to get rid of aversion, probably get ourselves into a terrible tangle again. Or sadness. Does sadness have to turn into depression? And there's... There are many causes for sadness in the world. And you realise the potential that human beings have for doing something really beautiful. Those of you that get the Dhammapada 
verse and comment that I send out every month and would have hopefully seen yesterday's verse which says, just as many garlands can be made from a heap of flowers, so it is the case that much that is wholesome can be done in this human existence. And there is the possibility of doing some something really beneficial, really wholesome, really beautiful for ourselves and for others. And yet it's also possible to create an awful mess. And, and you see the level of unkindness and insensitivity and lack of forgiveness and dishonesty and that there is around us. And, and well, sadness is an appropriate response. Why would, why would we not feel sad when we see that? But do we have to be dragged down into the vortex of depression? We might feel so. You say, well, there's so many causes for sadness that you can't help but feel depressed. Well, maybe that's not the case. And Again, this is not a, a dogma that the Buddha taught that we're supposed to believe in or automatically agree with, but it's an invitation to to develop our faculties, to refine down our appreciation of the quality of attention out of which we're living. If attention is agile, if it's refined, if awareness is expanded, is developed, then maybe we get a perspective on this. We can start to see for ourselves that desire, aversion, sadness are just that sensations, perceptions, experiences. It's clinging. Where, when and how we cling to these sensations, perceptions, experiences that creates the suffering, creates the real difficulty. So once again, mentioning this by way of encouraging the cultivation of agility of attention and getting back to where we started this evening on this particular apparent conundrum of self and not self that sometimes people struggle over there is a time the Buddha did teach that there's a time to work on developing a functional wholesome sense of self but he also taught that this apparent sense of self is not what it looks like and encouraged us to question the way it appears in other words to to contemplate not self and with agility of attention then there's a chance we'll at least be somewhat prepared so that when these kind of apparent conflicts are presented to us instead of defaulting to some fixed position or clinging to some view we can open up and learn what we need to learn from life. And thank you very much this evening for your attention. <coughs>